Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. Each of these messages were given by various faculty, staff, and friends of Emmaus Bible College. To view each series as a whole, or for more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. That's C-O-N-C-E-R-N-I-N-G-H-I-M.com. Welcome back to our series on the Gospel of Matthew. This morning we're going to look at Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, a section which I've entitled, Not Your Typical Baptist. Now, if you're familiar with this section, you'll know that the one that we call John the Baptist isn't really a Baptist and that he belongs to that modern denomination. In fact, uh, we might suspect that he would make for a pretty atypical Baptist pastor. In fact, come to think of it, he wouldn't really fit in well with any Christian denomination or tradition. John the Baptist is too outrageous and extreme of a character to fit in with our modern-day religious establishment of Christendom. And actually, he wouldn't fit quite today, but he also wouldn't quite fit in back then in uh, first-century Judaism either. He would be a radical revolutionary today, and he was back then. Now, that's not to say that he wasn't a popular guy, uh, not to say that he didn't have a big following, and it's also not to say that there weren't other people like him doing the sort of things that he was doing. Uh, let's begin by reading what the ancient Jewish historian Josephus has to say about our character in his work, The Antiquities of the Jews. This is starting in section 18. Quote, Now some of the Jews thought that the destruction of Herod's army came from God, and that very justly, as a punishment of what he did against John, that was called the Baptist. For Herod slew him, who was a good man, and commanded the Jews to exercise virtue, both as to righteousness towards one another, and piety towards God, and so to come to baptism, for that the washing with water would be acceptable to him, if they made use of it, not in order to the putting away or the remission of some sins only, but for the purification of the body, supposing still that the soul was thoroughly purified beforehand by righteousness. Now, when many others came in crowds about him, for they were greatly moved or pleased by hearing his words, Herod, who feared lest the great influence John had over the people might put it into his power and an inclination to raise a rebellion, for they seemed ready to do anything he should advise, thought it best by putting him to death to prevent any mischief he might cause, and not bring himself into difficulties by sparing a man who might make him repent of it when it should be too late. Accordingly, he was sent a prisoner out of Herod's suspicious temper to Marcarus, the castle I before mentioned, and was there put to death. Now the Jews had an opinion that the destruction of this army was sent as a punishment upon Herod and mark of God's displeasure with him. End quote. Now this is a pretty, pretty big quotation. Uh, there's a lot to learn from it here, but just a few things to bring out. Notice how Josephus talks about John being a revolutionary figure so much that King Herod fears him and fears that he's going to cause a rebellion. And this has a lot of overlap with the portrayal that we get of John the Baptist uh, in the Gospels, particularly the Synoptics. And by that, I mean Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, to be sure, there are a few differences in the way that Josephus describes John the Baptist, but the similarities are more significant. So, as I read through Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, uh, pay careful attention to both John the Baptist's message 
and also the theological significance that Matthew assigns to him, starting in verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now this unit can be divided into two sections. We get a description of John's ministry in verses 1 through 4, and then a description of some reactions to his ministry in verses 5 to 10. Verse 1 identifies the location of John's work as being in the wilderness of Judea. Now this is highly significant. His location suggests that we could rightly compare him to a religious sect within Judaism called the Essenes who have a lot of overlap with uh, the community at Qumran and about whom we find so much information in the Dead Sea Scrolls. They lived in the desert or in the wilderness and were strict adherents of the law who were awaiting the end of the world. These people saw the religious establishment of Jerusalem as morally and spiritually bankrupt, beyond saving. And for them, the only right response to the corruption of that religious system uh, was, well, to borrow the words of Revelation, come out of her, my people, so that you do not partake of her sins. In breaking from the existing religious establishment, John the Baptist has much similarity with this Essene sect, or the Qumran community. John is not the sort of person who can be booked in the normal venues. He refuses to be a part of the temple and its operations. He refuses to engage with the synagogues and teach in the normal established pattern. Uh, To hear him preach, you'd have to leave your own hometown and go out to him, away from all the religious bigwigs of the day. This partly explains his negative reaction when two main groups within first century Judaism come to see him. I'm talking about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees were what would be labeled today as the theological liberals. They didn't believe in miracles or angels. Uh, They viewed their contribution to the well-being of Israel as negotiating with the existing powers, attempting to make peaceable compromises, etc. And the Pharisees were on the other end of the spectrum. They were theologically conservative in that they believed in the miraculous and the importance of strict adherence to the law. They were more against Hellenization, or the process of being influenced by Greek culture, than the Sadducees. Their approach to benefit the people of Israel was to call the people to personal holiness by obeying God's word. 
Now, after all, uh, in books like The Judges, Israel's oppression always seems to come because of her sin. And so it only made sense that for deliverance for the people of Israel at their time, they needed to take the topic of holiness seriously. And yet, for all their differences, representing two ends of the theological spectrum, these two groups are lumped together. Uh, from the brief and simplistic explanation that I just gave, many of us might be tempted to think that the Pharisees really did have it right. But John's scathing critique comes to both of them, and, and he includes the Pharisees with, with the Sadducees, uh, not because they were wrong in being concerned about the law, but because he knows of their hypocrisy. So one reason John conducts his ministry in the wilderness is because it is away from the religious establishment. And now that reading fits well with what we know about the first century, uh, particularly Judaism at the time, and it fits well with what Matthew tells us about how John responds to the Pharisees and Sadducees when they come to see him. But the significance of the wilderness setting can also be seen in this quotation from Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3. Isaiah 40 is in a very strategic place in the book of Isaiah as it begins the uh, second major section of that prophecy. In the first 39 chapters, the perspective is mostly on the coming invasion um, as a future event. But the second unit, starting in chapter 40, views Israel as returning back to the land after the exile is over. Uh, the direction of God is twofold in Isaiah 40. On the one hand, he is coming to the people, and so their job is to get ready for him and clear a path. The, the valleys will be made high and the high places will be brought low. And on the other hand, uh, chapter 40, verse 11, talks about God picking up his people and carrying them like a shepherd with his sheep. God is going to lead them back to the promised land. The exile is over and they are going home. This fits well with a few hints that we've already seen regarding the theme of exile in Matthew both from the genealogy and from the quote from Jeremiah 31. Remember when we were talking about the uh, slaughter of the innocents. Israel was in a state of spiritual exile, but that is all about to end. John's role in the drama of redemption is, is he has the great privilege of being the one who gets the people ready for the coming of God himself, who will finally bring his people back home. Obviously, the people were geographically living in the Promised Land, but they weren't there as God had really intended. While they weren't in a state of geographic exile, they were there in a state of spiritual exile, and all that was about to end. God was coming to redeem his people. Their job was to get ready. In other words, John's message was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, that's an important message for us to really camp out on and focus in on, and we'll do that in our next episode. But for right now, let's think a little more about the description of John's ministry. There's just so much to learn here. Uh, being in the wilderness communicates the message that he rejects the current religious establishment. Being in the wilderness communicates that he's Isaiah 40's forerunner, who announces that God is coming to bring his people home. But being in the wilderness also evokes the well-known biblical setting of the people in the wilderness as they escape bondage in Egypt. Now, when we come to Matthew chapter 4, we will see that this is the most likely background against which to see the Lord's temptations. 
But the very importance of this setting in Israel's history suggests it too tells us something about John's message. Imagine, for example, if a modern-day politician is concerned about the divided state of our country, and so he decides to deliver a major speech uh, at Gettysburg. The historical importance of that place in U.S. history would surely be significant to what he is trying to do. Similarly, John's call to Israel to come out to the desert and once again pass through the Jordan reinforces his message that the nation as a whole needs a new start. They need to press the reset button together and have a kind of new birth as a country. In other words, they, Israel, needed to repent. This message of repentance is subtly reinforced by John's attire. His camel hair garment and leather belt are intended to remind us of the character Elijah. For example, see 2 Kings 1-8. Elijah ministered in a day of syncretism, that is when people tried to join the worship of Baal and the worship of Yahweh. And Elijah insisted that people choose between the two and worship the true God. Of course, the nation during the first century would have loudly protested that they had chosen Yahweh, they had chosen the true God, they had rejected idolatry of the surrounding Gentile nations. In fact, they'd even paid a heavy price for doing so. They would have said, we have chosen the true God. But by replaying Elijah, by dressing up like him, it's like John is saying, have you really? The so-called reforms of the day were insufficient and the people were still at a crossroads like they were at the time of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. The question was still, will you truly serve the true God? One of the things that makes John such a cool character to me is that uh, he turns his gaze, uh, to use the figure of speech, uh, he turns his guns not so much on the Roman Empire or on Greek mythology, but on his own people, the people that he loves and cares about, that in some way he's a part of. He hasn't given up on them, but he calls them to repentance. So too, we can rightly critique many of the ills of our society and complain about secularism and the world around us. But uh, we still today need people like John the Baptist who will point their guns at our own people, who will fix our gaze on the church and say that we, Christianity, needs to repent and choose to serve the true and living God. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit emmaus.edu partner.